0: Welcome to the Together for Good podcast brought to you by Bethany Lutheran Church in Cherry Hills Village, Colorado. Our episode today is a Bible study that I put together for you all. It looks at 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Uh, I'm guessing that's a verse that maybe you haven't spent much time with. It might be familiar once we start diving in, but it's one of my favorites, and I'm recording this one because it has some stewardship themes to it. We're in a stewardship season here at Bethany where we think about. All the different ways that God calls us to share from the abundance that God has first given to us. And as we make our way through this Bible study, I think you'll see the ways that this passage connects with that overall theme. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'm really excited about all the ways that this podcast is growing and spreading. I do hope that you share it with other friends, tell other people about it. Uh, We have lots of great plans for future content on this space. Uh, and if you think of it, go to the iTunes store, leave us a review or a rating. All of that does help other people discover uh, this podcast. Without further ado, though, here is a Bible study on 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Hello, everyone. I have a Bible study all prepped and ready to go. And this is part of this stewardship season at Bethany. I thought um, it might be fun to lead us through a study of scripture in like a great detail like we like to do on these podcasts and really get into the nitty gritty. Um, And this story, I I promise you, it's going to have a stewardship lens to it by the end. At first, you're going to hear it and we're going to read through it and you're going to wonder where I'm going. You just got to trust me, okay? This is one of my favorite favorite stories in the whole Bible, and I'd been trying to think of when I would use it for one of these podcasts because I knew I was going to at some point, and then it hit me that stewardship was the perfect time for this one to come up. So here we go. If you want to get your Bibles out, that would be cool, but if not, if you're just driving, don't get your Bible out. Keep driving. Um, if you're on a walk, maybe you don't have your Bible with you. We're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15 guessing that it's been a little while since you've read second kings it's in the old testament um it's kind of right in the middle there closer towards the beginning rather than towards the end um and it's a really cool story about a guy named Naaman and about the prophet Elisha who's not to be confused with Elijah who's the prophet that comes before it goes Elijah and then Elisha um why they couldn't change more than just a couple of consonants I don't know uh, and just fun little story, my wife had two great uncles who were twins, and they were named, they named them Elijah and Elisha, which just seems cruel and unusual, and probably like a real headache for that family. But anyways, we're talking about Elisha today, and the story of Naaman, as found in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Uh, and I'm going to go just verse by verse, kind of breaking this down for you, because there is so much packed in here. Are you ready? Buckle up. Here we go. We start at verse one. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given him victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. So in that first verse, we get introduced to Naaman, who we find out is a great military leader for the king of Aram. And so the king really likes this guy. He's helped give me victory in different points in time. But unfortunately, Naaman's sick. He has leprosy. Now leprosy uh, today is a diagnosable ailment. There's very specific pieces that denote leprosy. Back in biblical times, whenever you see the word leprosy in the Bible, it just means some sort of skin disease. It could have been any number of things, but it was kind of a catch-all term at that point in time. Nowadays, like I said, it's very, it's much more specific, but in those days, it could have been any number of different things. But when you had leprosy it meant you had a skin disease so it was very visible and technically within judaism it made you richly unclean so usually there were leper colonies and the lepers living outside of community Uh, naaman finds himself in a tricky spot he's a great leader highly um highly praised by the king and yet he has this condition and so we I'll I'll leave it there. Let's just, what I do want to say though, is that this whole introduction, this first verse is hinting at the theme for the entire passage, really. And a theme that appears throughout the book of Kings, first and second Kings, is that God is the God of everyone, not just Israel. Notice that all the people we've been introduced to so far are not Israelites. They're not part of the kingdom of Israel. And yet we're hearing this story about them keep that in mind because it's going to come into play later. Uh, We now read uh, verse two. Now the Armenians on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel and she served Naaman's wife. So we get introduced to this girl who was captured. You see, at that time, Israel did have a peace treaty with the Armenians. Um, However, Even though they had a peace treaty, apparently there were still minor border skirmishes that took place. And so it's believed that this girl was probably captured during one of these little flare-ups that took place between these two nations, despite their peace treaty. And so we find out that this girl was captured during one of these minor border skirmishes, and now she's serving as Naaman's wife's servant, and she is from Israel. We didn't hear about Israel in verse 1, but we get a mention of it there in verse 2. Okay, moving on now to verse 3. This young girl said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So it's this captured young servant girl who first makes mention of the prophet in Samaria. the, The prophet for the house of Israel. She's the one that puts it on everyone's radar as a possibility of healing for Naaman, because he's suffering from this great skin disease, can't figure out what to do about it. And it's this young, captured girl who points him in the right direction, as we'll see. Um, what we know as well about um, Elisha from this little verse, what's really fascinating is that Elisha is, you know, she doesn't mention him by name, which is, if only only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. What's interesting about those details is that Samaria is a kind of a separate part from Israel. And it's interesting that we hear that Elisha was living in Samaria which at that time was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so his status, you can kind of tell the fact that Elisha is the prophet in the capital city means that he's kind of like a big deal. There were prophetic communities throughout Israel at that point in time. However, Elisha is the one who's in the capital. So he's a little better, a little more renowned than the rest of the prophets. Additionally, the prophets tended to live in uh, community together, and it seems that Elisha, as we'll hear even later in the the passage, lived separate from it. Again, just denoting the fact that Elisha was a bigger deal than the other run-of-the-mill prophets of that day. In verse 4, we read, So Naaman went and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. So Naaman takes the advice of this young captured servant girl. And then we read in verse five and the king of Aram said, go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 sets of garments. Okay. So the king says like, this seems like a great idea. Naaman, I want to make sure that you're healthy and healed. You're my best warrior. So he's like, you go over to Israel who, again, they have a peace treaty with Israel, but there's still minor border skirmishes, so it's not all hunky-dory. And the king of Aram, uh, the king, King Aram, says, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel stating, hey, go get your prophet and heal my guy Naaman. I'm telling you all those details because it's really setting up a, a pretty important moment later on. Also, just so you know, he sends with Naaman 10 talents, 6,000 shekels, um, 10 talents was a huge sum of money. We hear, if you look at First Kings chapter 16, verse 24, they make mention that Omri pays two talents for the hill of Samaria. So it costs two talents to buy this huge hill in the capital city. <laughs> Naaman is going with 10 talents. Additionally, 10 talents, scholars estimate, was about 756 pounds. And 6,000 shekels probably weighed about 151 pounds. So Naaman is being sent with a thousand pounds of money (laughs) to Israel, to the king. It it does also just show you how much Aram valued Naaman and wanted him to be healed. If he's sending a thousand pounds of money with him, along with this letter to the king of Israel. Which brings us now to verse 6. So Naaman brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. So the king, in this case, King Aram, assumes that the blessings of God can be bought with a large sum of money. And furthermore, King Aram is putting the whole emphasis and pressure on the king of Israel saying like, hey, I'm sending you my best servant, uh, my my warrior leader Naaman, and you need to heal him. Here's $1,000 that should take care of it. Sorry, not $1,000, 1,000 pounds of money. (laughs) Way more than $1,000 in today's terms. And he's saying, look, I can buy the blessings of God. I know, you know, we heard that you had this prophet who could heal him, make it happen. Which leads us to verse seven. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So this is why I was telling you all those details about the tension between the Armenians and. The I shouldn't say the Armenians, the Ar- Aramians, that's probably more how it's pronounced, and Israel. There was tension between those two countries. And so when the king of Israel reads this letter and sees Naaman coming with all this money and this expectation of being healed, he tears his clothes with you know, this outward expression of, of anger and grief. He feels like he's being put in an impossible situation. He's being cornered. Now he's responsible for Naaman. He has no way of healing this man. And he realizes, like, this could result in war between our countries. If I let Naaman die, the king will use that as pretense to attack us. So you can see what a difficult situation he's put in. Um, And furthermore, a recurring theme, just to pick up on some of the words, the king says, am I God to give death or life? And throughout the Old Testament, we hear again and again that only God has the authority to give death and life. That's a very recurring theme. You can read it in Deuteronomy 32, chapter, or, chapter 32, verse 39, 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verse 6, Hosea, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. As you can see, it, it comes up a lot. All right, and now I'm just checking my notes, excuse me. The other piece about this, though, the king of Israel in this moment can only think about the big international difficulties that are at stake by being put in this position, but that what he's completely missing is the presence of God that is in his country with him. The King of Israel knows that he has Elisha, this man who is some sort of agent of God, a prophet better than all the others, right? That's why Naaman was sent there to begin with. And so it's a, it's a good reminder that that can be our position too. Sometimes we miss the ways that God is present right under our nose and right with us. And we think the situation's hopeless and we fail to realize all the ways that God has brought community around us and and given us what we need to make it through the day, to make it through the difficult situation, right? The, The king of Israel here is getting so focused on the pressure of having to cure Naaman that he's missing all the ways that God is still at work. Let's get back to the reading now, verse eight. But when Elisha, The man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king Why have you torn your clothes? Let Naaman come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. See, Elisha is slightly rebuking the king here for not consulting the Lord's prophet and not recognizing the saving presence of God that is present there through Elisha. And so, this can be a rebuke, as I said, of us as well. Uh, reading this passage, I'm always struck by how Elisha's words just seem to hit so close to home and and speak to present situations today. Let's continue with verse nine. So Naaman went with horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. So Naaman has to drive his chariot to wherever Elisha is. It's somewhere in the capital city, Samaria, but the fact that he had to drive his chariot makes us think that Elisha, again, is kind of living in a secluded place, just outside the normal, busy hustle and bustle of a capital city. But also, it's a a great image to think of as Naaman with his thousand pounds of gold and his chariots and his horses rides up onto Elisha's front lawn. It, by riding directly up to the house of Elisha, Naaman is playing into this common theme in the book of Kings, First Kings and Second Kings. Naaman believes that his earthly status of chariots and horses and money, that these are qualifications that will allow him to demand the blessings of God. It's very similar to what the king Aram did as well, sending a thousand pounds of gold in this letter, thinking that that will bring the blessings of God. We see it again with Naaman bringing all this force. Just imagine that, right? He pulls up on Elisha's front lawn with chariots and horses and all this pomp and circumstance and power and might as if to say, you know, I demand that the Lord heal me. And in the same sense, We often fall victim in this world and in this day and age to thinking that power and money and status and fame, we think that those will be the things that save us, that'll make it all all right. And we miss the ways that God is present, that God is right there, and that God is all that we need. Okay, we're now on verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger out to Naaman saying, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. So Elisha's not impressed. Elisha doesn't even come outside to talk to Naaman. Here Naaman is with his grand military parade pulling up onto Elisha's front lawn and Elisha's like, yeah, I'll just send a messenger out to him. Elisha's trying to flip the script, he's like, I'm not impressed by your chariots and horses and pounds and pounds of money, Naaman, I'm not impressed by your military victories. And, you know, it, it, Elisha makes it very, very normal. Just go wash in the Jordan seven times. The instructions themselves are instructive, not just to wash in the Jordan, but Elisha's trying to show Naaman that healing comes by the power of God and only like by obeying the words of God, the words of the Lord's prophet. Naaman is supposed to wash in the Jordan River. And that's significant because the Jordan River was really dirty. I know we think of it as this holy place today, but it's not that impressive of a river. And that's all part of the instruction too. Naaman's supposed to just go wash in the muddy waters of the Jordan, and that's where healing will happen. The um, other piece too is that Washing seven times in the river was a a common practice. It it was a ritual healing that many people would go through on a regular basis. Kind of, you know how we do confession and forgiveness on a Sunday morning? Think of it that way. You know, it it was this practice that people do all the time as part of their life of faith, as part of their own practice, um, just being a part of society in that day. And so for Elisha to say, go wash in the ordinary muddy Jordan River, and just do this you know typical ritual that you've probably already done before Naaman but just do, go do it in in the river and then you'll be healed it really puts the emphasis on on faith in a lot of ways Naaman do you trust that that's all it would take for God to heal you that God could work through something as ordinary as the Jordan River something as common day as the ritual washing that we all partake in on a regular basis This is all the subtext of Elisha's instructions here. Which brings us to verse 11, Naaman's reaction to the instructions. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Naaman once again shows us that he's a stubborn man. And that he wants to be respected for his position of power and authority and might. He expects personal and immediate attention and not just a prescription for a very common ritual washing. Naaman, it seems like he's even expecting some sort of magic technique, some magic trick where he waves his hand over the spot. He's missing the point. He thinks that healing and the power of God is always manifest through grand gestures and moments but the prophet is pointing to the fact that the healing power of god often comes through very ordinary moments and not only that but the power of god frankly comes through faith and obedience to these simple instructions in verse 12 naaman keeps ranting he says are not abana and far far the rivers of damascus better than all the waters of israel could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned away, and he turned and went away in a rage. Oh, temper, temper, Naaman. Come on, man! But he's talking about these these grand rivers that were closer to um, his part of the world, or that that, that had a. a... A reputation, the, the Abana or the Amana, depending on which translation, was referred to as the Golden River by the Greeks. So it's beautiful and a much more grand, more suiting of Naaman's power and authority. But isn't it so funny that Naaman just can't can't get his mind around the ordinary, simple instructions? He wants it to be something big and mighty and grand, and that's where his head is getting stuck. And i think we fall victim to that too right thinking that every action we take has to be the next big grand thing i am reminded of how i would often approach youth ministry early on in my career and thinking that i always needed to create the next great youth event that would just change kids lives forever instead of trusting that god could work through really ordinary everyday moments This is part of our problem, even still today. I think we're a lot like Naaman, always expecting bigger and better and grander when often God works in the ordinary. Back to the reading we hear in verse 13. But Naaman's servants approached him and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? I want to point out, but this is the second time in this reading that the servants give Naaman the proper instructions. Remember that it was a young servant girl who first suggested he come to Israel. And now it's his servants who are calming him down and helping him to see that like, hey, right? If it had been something really complex and complicated, you would have done it. So why not just at least try this really easy instruction that Elisha is giving to you? Verse 14 now, so Naaman went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. There's obviously some real baptismal imagery in all of this about how Naaman has been restored by these waters, his flesh is reborn, and it's all out of obedience to God's word. At baptism, I want you to know there's water in that baptismal font, but it's ordinary water. As Lutherans, we don't need to find special holy water or anything like that. We believe that God works through very ordinary means, and yet something extraordinary happens in that moment. It's just out of obedience to God's word and our collective faith as community that something amazing happens at baptism. Just as here, something amazing happened for Naaman through obedience to God's word and simple actions. So I want to point out all of the ways that ordinary people and moments helped bring about healing for Naaman in this story, right? It was the ordinary servant girl who first suggested the idea. It was the ordinary Jordan River where he washed himself. It was a normal, ordinary cleansing ritual that he took part in. It was his servants who, his ordinary servants who finally advised him and talked Naaman into even trying Elisha's assumption. In the same way, isn't that how our life of faith works? Ordinary ways that God speaks to us through the ordinary scriptures that we have. The stories that have been passed down for thousands of years often it's right conversations with friends or maybe hopefully like something the pastor might say on Sunday morning or on a podcast just ordinary words that help us know of God's presence and love in our life it's books it's music right and and it's our sacraments as I've already mentioned baptism we use ordinary water for this very sacred extraordinary moment Communion, we use ordinary bread and wine. Well, not that ordinary, right? It tastes a little funny sometimes. Um, but there's nothing particularly special about the bread or the wine that we use. We just use bread and wine because it's what Jesus commanded. And yet something extraordinary happens when we share in communion. This is such a recurring theme in faith, in our life of faith, in the Bible itself. God always seems to try and find the most lowly, humble person to accomplish God's will in the world. Whether it was the Israelites, who I'll remind you were originally enslaved in Egypt, God chose them to be the people who would be God's hands and feet in the world. Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph in a stable. Again, something so ordinary, so vulnerable And yet so extraordinary when we see how God worked through it. So what in the world does all this have to do with stewardship? (laughs) I think it's all this theme of extraordinary and ordinary. Just a reminder that whatever we're able to give, God can do something extraordinary with it. All that's required of us is to follow the word of God, to, to do the simple things of... Of not clinging tightly to our possessions or to our time or to our talents, but to freely share them. That's what the Lord requires and asks of us is to to share what we've already been given. And when we do that, something extraordinary happens, right? And I think people get so caught up in saying like, oh, I have nothing to offer. I, you know, there's, there's nothing, you know, so people are so much better at this, that, or the other thing, but that's where we get hung up. That's where we're talking like Naaman. We expect that we need to have some sort of incredible, powerful, impressive gift for God to be able to work through us. No, that's not what it's about. God takes whatever you're able to offer and then does something amazing with it. How often have we seen that play out? Just the ways that our ordinary actions of maybe giving a little bit more or sharing a little bit more, committing a little bit more of our life to this Jesus mission, how that can have such a profound impact on what God is doing in the world and in our church and in our community. I hope that gives you something to think about. Um, I hope it also makes stewardship a little less scary. I think it gets such a bad rap, but all we're ask, you know, all God asks of us is something really, really simple and when we respond to God's blessings with, bless, you know, by sharing our blessings, amazing, extraordinary things can happen. I'm Pastor Nate. This has been a Bible study on Second Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope it gave you some new things to think about. Stay in peace.